Do you know how much money you need to save every day to become a millionaire in this lifetime? Well, you should really know the answer from the podcast title or reading the description. It's $7 a day invested at 7% returns. A simple path to becoming a millionaire. But this is the financial coconut. As usual, we're going to dig deep into it, challenge the assumptions and play with the numbers. Many of our listeners are on their journey towards financial freedom. Let's go through some concepts to make sure you're on track. I also find this $7 millionaire idea useful. If you want to convince a loved one to start paying attention to their finances, to start saving, to start investing. Because $7 a day is, is palatable, it's easy to think about. And that's how my guest today convinced his young daughter to be interested in personal finance. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome to another Chew with TFC episode. In this series, we talk to interesting people with relevant experience and insights to help us learn from their perspectives so that we can create the life we love and manage our finances well. My guest today is a hedge fund manager and research director. Therefore, he's no stranger to complicated financial concepts. However, his formula for financial freedom is actually quite simple. He has conducted workshops for migrant workers to help them manage their finances. And there are some important lessons to be learned from observing people's spending habits. Let's find out how to achieve financial freedom from Michael Gilmore, also known as the $7 Millionaire. So let's start with the name first, $7 Millionaire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Help us understand that. So yeah, that was actually one of those conversations with my daughter. So when she'd been reading about compounding and we'd got to the bit about financially free and you need 25 times your annual spending to be financially free as assets, she said, well, okay, what if I needed a, a million dollars? How long would it take me to save that? So I was like, well, you know, pretty straightforward. You, you know, 50 years of working, you know, you'd need to save $20,000 a, a year to, to get to that number. But I said, but if you invest it, it will compound. She said, okay, well, what if I compound at a nice regular rate? How much do I need to save every day? So we said, well, let's work it out. I said, I have literally no idea. So we sat down, I built a spreadsheet and wrote it out. And she was like, it's $7. And I was surprised. You know, I was genuinely like, that's a tiny amount of money. $7 a day. $7 a day, saved for 50 years. Every day for 50 years, but then invested at the end of every year. So we, do, we give you like a year off. You can save okay. like for the first year. Then at the end of the first year, you save $2,500 because that's what you saved. You invest that. Then the end of next year, you invest the next $2,500 and you do that. That's, the, that's kind of the real detail of, of making sure it's reasonably accurate. We're not assuming every dollar gets invested on mm. day one. Yeah, and it's $7 because the compounding effect is just so strong. You know, it's like I still have to do this on my fingers. It's like compounding isn't easy, right? But if you double on your fingers, you can do it. And it's like, so in 10 years, you save $25,000. So $2,500, so $7 a day, it's $2,500 a year. So $25,000 over 10 years, right? So at the end of 10 years, you'd have $25,000, but you've invested it for nine years at least, right? So now you've got $35,000 because that will have added up. So then 7% returns, 
they double every 10 years, roughly. So at the end of 10 years, you got 35,000. Then you got, at the end of 20 years, you got 70, 140, 280, 560. Now remember, that's 560 from $7 a day of just, $7 a day for just 10 years, just the first 10 years. Right? You could stop but at the age of 30 and still have 560 when you, when you, you know, at the age of 70. So that's where all the compounding gets done. And that was the moment I could see in her, her eyes. Until then, you know, her dad had just been talking about boring money. And partying. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And she looks at, oh, that just adds up. That is how it happens. I so, say, yeah, I can do that. I can okay. do it. And she, boom, immediately. She was just, the, the, the light went on. Like, there is a reason to not just spend everything. Because let's say if you think about 7% returns, right? I could, if I have $10 today, I could go and spend $10. And if I don't, I have what? $10.70? Like next year? Who cares? That's what most people think. That's why most people don't get involved in, in actually investing. But if you say to you know, $10 now or $500 in X number of years, right? okay, this is worthwhile, right? That's life-changing. And that's where I could see that because I'd done like the basic work, building the fundamentals, she got it all, and bang. And when she's like, $7, I was like, okay, that's a number. We're going to keep that. And that's why $7 millionaire. And that's even when it was just, just me and her, you know, working on the book. I was like, this book's by the $7 millionaire. Written by the $7 millionaire. Yeah. So for those of you listening, you can well, check it out on an Excel spreadsheet. So $7 every day. And then you invest at the end of the year, mm-hmm. compound at 7% annual returns. Yep. In 50 years time, you'll be a millionaire. Yep. So that's the basic premise of the whole idea of $7 millionaire. Exactly. And, and as you see, I, so I just did it on my fingers. Like That's how you get 560 from 10 years. Mm. And then obviously the years between 30 and 40, you don't get quite so long to compound, right? To the age of 70. So actually what you do is you drop back a number. So it says 560. The 10 years after that is worth 280. The 10 years after that is worth 140. And that's how you add it up. Actually, you probably stop. You wouldn't become a millionaire if you stopped investing around the age of, if you just say from 20 to 50, and then just let that money compound, you'd be very close to a millionaire. The last 20 years don't really do all that much okay. because of the power of compounding. Because depending on who's looking at this formula, right? Mm-hmm. If you tell them you'll become a millionaire in 50 years' time and then they'll be thinking about inflation, million in 50 years' time might not be a lot. They'll be thinking, well, 50 years is too long. But, but your idea is not to really be strictly you know, yeah. adhering to just $7 a day, right? You could double it, for example, $14. Yeah. And it won't be 25 years. It won't be half of 50 years because nope. of compounding. Exactly, right? exactly. So, so it'll, be, it'll be 2 million in 50 years. Fourteen, fourteen dollars a day. Yeah, fourteen, yeah. and and so it goes like that. But no, it doesn't compound. I mean, that's mm. the thing, right? You you have to really increase the rate of return you get to do that, which is dangerous. So then you have to actually just you have to target a lower number and in a shorter period of time, and then target a higher savings rate. But the, all all the numbers are in there. The the part about inflation is tricky. It's another it's another question because obviously a million dollars of value that just changes all the time. Mm. But the, the point would be that. If you've got a million, you're going to be way better off than not having a million. Mm. And you only get there by starting. That's and a good that, starting point. So, for example, $7 a day, you can think of it as, well, 30 days in a month. So, $210 a month. Mm-hmm, I mean, exactly. Plus, minus, you can roughly work out your own yeah, yeah. sums according to your own situation. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, it, and it, it is that thought process. One of the other, so actually on my website, on, um, I think it's on the $7 millionaire website, we have a, a section which has a couple of calculators. One of them is, 
just the compounding, how you get to a million dollars and how to get there. So you can change the amount you save per day. You can change the interest, you know, the, the return you get. But there's another calculator which is actually about being financially free. So how quickly you can be financially free. So depending on the return rate you get, but also the percentage of your income you save. So okay. that's the other one to play with. But that one also throws in an inflation, right? Because to be financially free, 20 years at 3% inflation is going to be a different number than today. So you have to calculate that as well. Okay, $7 a day, the magical number. That's yeah. when your daughter's eyes light up. You know, you know yeah, you're yeah. trying to teach her about financial literacy all this while. And that's the moment because she was a teenager, right? When you showed yeah. her this. Yes, she was 17. She was uh, 17. And that was part of the, the idea was she was going off to college when she was 18. So I had one year. And I just thought, if she doesn't come home off to college, which kids do, right? They, they go off into the world. They do <laughs> lots of things. Yeah. This is my last chance. And, you know, I kind of figured this stuff out started figuring out finance, you know, late 20s, early 30s, started getting my investments, started figuring out, you know, mid 30s. And I, she's never going to work in finance. She's not going to have a desire to do this. So I've got to hit, get it now. And even now, right? So five yeah, years later, it clicked, yeah. right? And But what was perfect was it's clicked. She's now working. She saves half her salary. She's been saving half her salary for a year. And she understands this goes away. This goes into markets. This goes into investments. And it just provides us some security later in life. That's the lesson. Okay. So can you give us an overview of the book, also known as advice you would give to your daughter? Yeah, sure. So that we can have a, a basis for our conversation today. Tell yeah. us the, the main idea. Of course, for the details, you have to read the book. Yeah. Well, no, I'm very happy. It's the, the, there's an acronym in, that basically becomes the sort of chapter structure of the book. Uh, and that acronym is MISSION. And MISSION stands for money, income, mm. saving, spending, investing, owning, and then most importantly, now. And the reason for, for that structure, and that actually was developed with my work with migrant workers, um, because we wanted to be really start the very fundamentals and the very basics, because a lot of the problems we have with financial understanding today is because we're not taught in school the very basics of, of money and what money is, we develop psychological attachments to it in strange ways. And so we think it's something else. Uh, and so I want to start with just the real basics of what money is. Um, and that's why that becomes like the foundational building block of the book. And then we can move on. To, okay, so you know what money is, which I can come back to later. But once you know what that is, then you have to get some income. Right? So then we can discuss the different ways of generating income. Now, before we get on to spending, which is where everyone else goes next, we have to save it. Because I think it's Robert, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, the, you know, said pay yourself first. A lot of people don't understand what that means. But basically, until you've saved money, you haven't paid yourself. Literally, it's like if you're a business, expenses are expenses, nothing left over, no profit. That's a loss, right? You pay yourself first, you've got a profit. And that's why saving, and it was something that we did when we worked with the migrant workers that really resonated, is saving always comes before spending. The moment you get paid money goes to the bank, right? Everything else goes into the savings account, goes into the investment account. Everything else comes after you've put that money away. And there's a lot of psychological studies that show it doesn't matter how much you want to save, if you save at the end of the month, it doesn't happen. Because you might think to yourself, I want to save $300, and then I'm just going to hold back on every single item I don't want to buy during the month. It won't happen. You'll spend it. Whereas if you put it away at the beginning of the month, you'll get to like three or four days before the end of the month. You're like, I'm out of money. I have to stop doing what I need to do because you've got that saving set away. So that's why saving comes first. And that's why it comes first in the order of the book as well. 
Then we go into spending because obviously it is important and we talk about a lot of different ways of controlling. And really a lot of it's about mindfulness. It's just about, okay, knowing that this is actually happening. You start writing it down. I joke with, with my wife that this book paid for itself. I mean, this cost a lot of money for, to, to develop for migrant workers, mm. but she did it. She tried it out. And she was immediately aware of spending that she wasn't aware of. You know, she was actually seeing how much she was doing. It goes for all of us. If you actually track your spending, I mean, there's a theory that we can only actually keep in our heads about seven out of 10 things. So if you spend 10 things in a week, you're missing probably three. So if you sit down and you do it every day, you'll know what you're spending on. So it's about that mindfulness of spending. Then obviously investing, the big part of investing. I didn't talk very much about what most people talk about in investing because my goal with everything in the book is to get someone like my daughter who's got no experience, no knowledge, and therefore very nervous and uncertain, is to bring them up to like ready to invest. The problem with investing is, of course, everyone needs a different first investment. So I can't say, you should all do this. Mm. I mean, S&P 500 is about as close as there is to that. But that's why I said, it's okay. Like, so what I deal with is I deal with risk and talk in the book about risk and say how to understand and reduce risk so you can feel more comfortable about making those first investments and then mission so for owning. Um, and that's, yeah, that's really the idea of financial freedom. How do you own your life? I, I, was, I was asked by someone the other day, it's like, but you know, you're not free from everything when you're financially free. It's like, no, you're just free from finances. That's it. I mean, I'm not free from worrying about my family. I'm not free from worrying about my health. I'm not free from worrying about my football team or my government or anything else, but I'm free from worrying about money. That's why it's financially free. And that's why actually people who say, well, you know, I'm not very interested in money. So, well, you should do this because this stops you thinking about money. So it's talking about that ownership of our lives. And then now, and now is obviously important because nothing happens any other time. You have to do it now. But also compounding starts now. You wait 10 years, it's as we just heard, right? You lose at least on $7 a day, you lose a quarter of a million dollars. I mean, amazing, right? You wait 10 years, it's a quarter of a million dollars. Gone. So mission acronym, M-I-S-S-I-O-N, that gives us a very good yeah. overview. Each of these letters is a whole episode in itself. Yeah. So there's so many areas that we can go into. But let's go into the first letter, M, yeah. money, right? So what is money? So money, what's important to understand about money is it's time and energy, right? So this is our lives, right? This is, I think it's Henry David Thoreau when he wrote Walden said that you, the cost of anything is the amount of life you give up for it. That's a misquote, but it's close. Mm. Um, and our lives are time and energy and creativity and innovation and ideas. But most of it is time and energy. And that's how we earn money, right? You know, say to someone, I'm going to do this for you for this amount of time. And they say, okay, I'll give you this money. And then you go to a coffee shop and you spend it. And yeah, you've got the guy in Brazil growing the beans and you've got the guy in the shop grinding the beans and making the funny shape on the top of the coffee. Everything is time and energy and skill. And it's the ability to transfer that is the first principle of money. But the second principle of money is it is also the ability to store it, mm. right? Because storing energy, if we look at the things with like uh, electro electric vehicles, right, today, and solar energy and wind energy, everyone's like, how do we store this energy, right? Well, we store human energy through money. But the beauty of money and the financial system is you can actually, if we get jump a few chapters, you can invest it. And it's not just like it keeps the money exactly as the money was. 
but it can become more money, like double or three or ten times as much money. And that's the beauty of what money can be. And that's why where we needed to start with money, right? Because if you don't start with money, if you start assuming everyone knows what money is and they're not thinking about it as being their time and their energy, they'll be like, well, investing to get three times the amount of money, that's just greedy or that's not enough or they can have all kinds of thoughts about it where it's like, no, you put your time and money, time and energy into getting that money and one day you won't have so much time and you won't have so much energy and you might need money to give you that time and energy. Uh, the perfect example for me is you're young, you know, you're fit, you sit in the back of a plane in like economy and you're like, yeah, no big deal. I sit in the back of a plane now, I come out stumbling like I can barely walk. To this day, I very, I still I sit in the economy when I fly. It's been two years now, right? Yeah, um, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. But if I'm, at the, if I'm in economy, it hurts like it didn't hurt when I was 25 and 30. And I keep thinking, I'm going to go in business next time. Next mm -hmm. time I'm going. But I've always been saving that money to be in business. Not to be, you know, not to be selfish, but to actually say, I want it when it hurts, when I need that, when it can avoid the pain. And that's how... I think there's more, there needs to be more of that kind of thought. And that's where you have to think about money. Money can buy you that time. It can buy you that energy. It can buy you the thing you need. And one of my favorite sayings, and I worked with my, talked to my daughter about it, was, you know, young people have time and energy, but no money. Working people have energy and money, but no time. Mm. And old people have, the last one, they have time and money, but no energy. Now, the beauty of what money does is in the middle of that is can provide the time and energy when you're old, if you have enough money. And that's the equation. It's okay. like if you've got that money saved up and invested, well, as you get older, you don't need, you've got the time, you've got the time, you've got the money, and it can provide the energy. Okay, so we can start thinking about True. money this way. Yep. True. So money, according to our definition of the, in the book, is time and energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned you work with migrant workers mm -hmm. and that helped to shape some ideas in the book yeah, as well. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about that. What were you doing with them? Well, I think it's, it's interesting that so migrant workers, are there's about 150 million migrant workers on the planet. And if you think about where you can make the most difference with financial education, it's them. Because they've literally left their homes behind to get more money. And they, they've done that to send it home, but also to save. To, to, you know, they're in poverty and they're trying to escape poverty. So giving them the inf right information can help change poverty. And so that's where I started working with them first. But obviously, as I started working with them, I realized there's lots of different levels of understanding. And that's where it came back to, let's address the real fundamentals. What is money? What can it do for you? And how do you get to a point where you can do that? And so that's why we start right at the very basics. So the mission was not written initially for my daughter's book. It was written for migrant workers to get them to understand, okay, money, and then income, and then saving, to build that, that sort of fundamental building block, building block, building block, so they got so that when they were starting to invest – they knew why. They knew what they were doing and why they were doing it. So they didn't start gambling to take too many risks, thinking, well, but if I make a 50% return, it's like, yeah, if you make a 50% return one year, you're losing it next year, right? That's the way, you know, high it's risk. It's gambling, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so, you know, you can't take those kinds of risks. If you're looking to build a long-term future, you know, nice, steady compounding investing is what works. 
but that requires understanding money. It un requires understanding how we're thinking about our lives. So that's why I was working with migrant workers. And it became a very good test base too, because you could always just make sure that they understood. Most migrant workers are not stupid. They are the people that have left their homes, right? They've worked out that they can't get paid enough in their hometowns. They've listened to people around them and said, okay, I'm going to go overseas. For whatever reason, their countries aren't as rich as ours. They don't have the opportunity opportunities our countries have. And there are migrant workers in every country in the world, right? So there's always someone moving around to become a migrant to those countries. So they're looking for those opportunities. These are smart people. But as with you, as with me, as with all of us, we haven't been taught about money. So they need those little basic steps because the, a statistic I thought was frightening when I first saw it, there's when migrant workers go home, one group did a survey and said, have you achieved your financial goals? Mm. Now you're going home. 6% said yes. 94% hadn't achieved their financial goals. And these are the people who are smart enough to leave their home countries to get more pay. But when they get here, they spend it or they send it to relatives or they don't invest it or it gets scammed or whatever happens, they don't hit those targets. And that's where I think that's a, a real tragedy. You think there's a million people, you know, migrant workers in Singapore right now. I think only 6% of them are one day going to go home with actually their target savings doesn't change any of our lives if they hit it what was the main obstacle was it spending habits multiple multiple habits one of those one of it's obviously spending habits mm -hmm. one of the first ones that gets everyone is they send it all home because they're the, a lot of them are quite selfless well, that's the goal right mm. well it's one of the goals right it's one of the goals is to send it home to take care of the family but another one is to build savings but a lot of them think to themselves I'll send it all home and someone will save for me, Okay, which doesn't happen. But then what also happens is they save some, send some home, save some, but then someone works out that they're saving and, you know, oh, you know, so-and-so needs to buy a new motorbike. Uh, my uncle's had a car crash or whatever, and they have to send more home. They become like the, you know, the ATM, right, the walking ATM. So that's where they, but they're also scammed. Mm. Right. They're also, you know, there's there's multiple reasons why it doesn't happen. And you think, okay, we can't go from six percent to a hundred percent with a bit of financial education. But it's a huge change if we go from six percent to ten or from ten to twenty. We change those kinds of numbers. We're hitting tens of thousands of people in just in Singapore every year. Uh, and that was the goal, was to really have those conversations. And you can see it if you work with migrant worker groups. We would we did workshops for a while on the journal. And there were two camps of savers. And some were saving maybe $50 a month, and others were saving above $300. And it was one of the reasons why the 210 that you, you, know, you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier on was a nice number, because it was close enough to the 50 to 100 for them to see it as a target, whereas they would listen to the one saving 400 a month and say, I can't do that. I can't save that much. And there's like, whereas 200 is like, it's clearly the next step. And once you're at 200, you can save more. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that's this progress so seven dollars a day about two hundred dollars yeah. a month what well, the case 210 yeah, yeah okay imagine 200 because you're saying that those in the who are saving more are saving about 300 dollars yeah that's the numbers they are looking at 300 to 400 mm -hmm. some of them really do okay. very very well uh and amazing stories as well from how they manage to save and okay. just you know how they don't spend let me understand the the workshop what did you make them do what did you share with them how did you make them learn about finance itself so it was actually, so, uh, you know, as, as, as you noticed from the journal, it's not really a journal. It's a workbook. It's a lot of work, worksheets. Yeah, yeah. Numbers you have to fill in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of things you have to fill in. 
But of course, one of the key things you have to fill in is how much did you spend in the last week and how much did you save in the last week and where did that spending go and try and analyse it and think about it. And of course, because you're doing it every week, it becomes a journal. So that's why we called it a journal. But that was where we were working with them, saying, okay, show me how you're tracking using some very basic versions of, of these worksheets and how would you like to fill it in, take it home, what questions would you like around it, what would you like to learn, but also working on that mission. Now, we didn't work too much on the full mission because with a sort of $1,000 journal, we can't be going to financial independence. It's mm. too far away. And mm. um, we didn't want to go with like the really abstract concepts of money, right? So we really just focused on you know, income, saving, spending, So this investing. relates to the income, saving yeah. and spending part. Those sort of middle chapters of mm. it. Really just sort of, okay, how do you maybe make a little bit more money, save a little bit more money, spend a little bit less money, start investing. So those were like every month we sort of address one of those projects. And, you know, we've got like a week, I don't know if you saw it, but there's like a week with like Warren Buffett talking about the basics of investing and, you know, pretty much following sort of uh, John Bogle's ideas on from Vanguard. Simple things, but just taking people up one small step and, and one a week. But then the reason we had the workshops is, you know, if I sit there as the author saying, how did you get on with this? A lot of them are helpers, right? They're just going to look at me and go, yeah, it was great, mm-hmm. right? So what I had was I had a group of students who were working out from NUS and we'd all split up and we'd have different workshops and they'd, oh, how did you get on with this? How did you like this? What do you need to see? And, you know, and we did it all the way from like just being printed on from Microsoft Word, right? And Excel spreadsheets. So really ugly. So like the, first, the first feedback was, Make it nicer. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Make it more enjoyable. Okay. So there was all that kind of feedback. But after that, it was like, okay, now it's nice. Uh, I'd like this. I'd like to know. If you saw in it, there's like need want column, right? Mm. That came from a migrant worker. That was a migrant worker saying everything needs I... Needs and wants. Needs and wants. Needs versus wants. I, wanted, okay. I want to know if it, I needed it or wanted it after I bought it to write down, you know what? I just wanted that. I'm going to circle want. And then I can look at the end of the week and say, oh, I'm, I'm buying too many things I just want. Right, that was just came straight from a workshop with a migrant worker. It was like brilliant. That's yeah, yeah, that's going in. And every time anyone asked anything, unless it was like crazy, like you know, oh, how do I how do I trade Bitcoin? Teach me how to trade Bitcoin. So no, uh, you know. But if it's something more straightforward, like how do I do needs and wants? It's like yeah, it fits with what we're doing. That's going in because it's pure feedback, right? Okay. So from doing all these worksheets and filling in all the the worksheets, mm-hmm. what are your main takeaways? Well, the most important one was actually giving people action. So it was like it encourages them to save because saving feels passive, right? It's like saving is just if you treat saving as the thing you do at the end of the month, it's just it's just not spending, right? Which is passive. Which the problem with passive things is active things reduce stress. It's why it's why retail therapy works. Retail therapy works because if you go into a shop. Like, buy this, buy this, and you build up more and more stress. And you buy something. Whereas if you don't, right, you're tense. You really want to buy it. So an action reduces that cortisol that you're building up as you get stressed. Mm -hmm. Any action, walking out the door, any action just reduces that stress. But that's what we had to work on. So one of the things we were doing, and that's the feedback we got, was lots of little activities. So one of them is just like at the bottom of every page, there's like, how many, how many weeks have you saved $7 a day, right? Have you done it every, you know, fill in the $7 a day down the side of the page. Fill in the weeks that you saved $50 or more. Fill these things in. It just becomes a small activity because we were giving them things to do, 
Right? And, and that was part of the feedback was more things to do just gets us engaged with the act of saving, not the non-act of not spending, right? It's the act of saving. So they were able to do more and just sort of take ownership of the book. And that's what the feedback we got, one of the feedbacks was, that's one of the things that really got them to enjoy you know, the process. Mm, so the, the main action that you want to take is the, the act of saving itself. And although this workshop is for migrant workers, mm-hmm. but I, I think many of us can really you know, learn from it because not all of us know how much we're spending every month, right? None of us. Let's face it, really. I mean, you know, do you really track everything you do? I don't. I mean, I know people that do. They've got their Excel spreadsheet and they track every single thing in their Excel spreadsheet. But there's very few people that really have that. You know, if you, you'd have to spend everything on the same card, right? Right, right. You'd it's have to use the same. You'd have to pull in the. Data you'd have to pull, in the, place, yeah. have to pull in the grab. Mm. You'd have to pull in the credit card. You'd have to pull in the cash. Everything would have to come in. It just doesn't happen. So there's always things being missed. But just to get mindful of it, it is really, really powerful because then you're in control. Right? And then you have the ability to say, I'm thinking I could only save 15% of my salary. But there's a whole 10% that is going out the door that I can't even remember. So it can't be that great. So I, mean, I can put it and take it to 25%. That's a huge difference. That's like the difference between retiring at the age of 70 and, the, and retiring at the age of 60 or like mid-50s. It's an enormous difference. It's like a good 10 years just for finding that extra 10%. And that can come about just by knowing what you're doing. Okay. Right? No change in like real value of life, just by knowing what you're doing. Mm. So I would say that it's a combination of awareness mm-hmm. and taking action to, to save. The awareness of your spending habits yeah. and, and then therefore taking the action to save. Yeah, That's the, the whole equation of saving and spending, right? That's it. And then you throw in investing and then you've got pretty much the entire mix, right? That's that's everything. As you well know, right? There's We can all complicate finances a lot if we choose to but getting those things three things right like knowing that you're saving and saving as much as you can not overspending so you're able to do that first one and then investing it reasonably well 90 percent of the game many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So what's the end goal? Well, I know the answer because I read the book. <laughs> but you know, let's for the sake of this podcast, you know, what was the end goal of it? Now that we know that money is time and energy, according to your definition, yeah. and then saving, spending, building more income, and, and therefore investing, right? What what is yeah. the number or the target you're looking at? Okay, so what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to give you a different answer from the one you're expecting, mm. because I know you're expecting me to talk about 25 times, right? That's right. So and and yeah, I will give you that answer. I mean, the simple answer is once you got 25 times your annual spending. You don't need to work anymore because you can withdraw 4% every year. And as long as the money's invested reasonably well, it should be, you know, you should be able to take out that 4% and then you'll get covered by inflation. So let's say inflation is 3%, you make a 7% return, take out 4 reinvest 3 your money's growing at the same pace as, as inflation. So that's the obvious answer. And that's the, the one that stops us all worrying about government pensions or worrying about being taken care of our, by our kids or any of those kinds of things. 25 times your annual spending, 
reasonably well invested and you're set for the rest of your life. It won't diminish. Uh, One of the proofs I got of this, once I went to meet, seven years ago, I met in um, the Rockefeller Foundation in New York. And they have been paying out 4% of their total or more, 4% of their total funds for more than 100 years. Right, so people say, well, you can only pay out 4% for so long. It's not true. If you invest it reasonably well, it will last forever because you can cover yourself with the investment games. So that was the obvious answer. Mm, that's quite a, a different yeah. uh, take from what I understand because mm. I mean, you, you've seen the 4% withdrawal rules yeah, yeah. on YouTube, uh, different yeah. blogs or different podcasts, right? Yeah. And what well, it came from a, a Trinity study. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, well... It was published in 1998, and so they took data from the 20s to the to the mm-hmm. 90s, and was well, there certain assumptions built into it, like for example, the the portfolio has to last for 30 years, and, mm-hmm. and then they came they arrived at this four percent withdrawal yeah. rule, right? Which is important because why not three percent? Why not? 4.5%, you know, why, why is it so specific at 4%? Yeah. So it's more than look at the assumptions, but because from your book, I understand that you you kind of. Um, strengthen the idea further from your meeting at the Rockefeller Foundation. Yeah, so, so Rockefeller, so you only get to be a charitable foundation in the US if you pay out 4% or more of your of your asset base. Okay. So every charitable foundation in the US is paying out 4% or more. All the universities are paying out more than that. All the charities are paying out more than that if they're set structured as a charitable foundation. So 4%, it's not that the American government knew that, years and years ago, but that was structured as the, as the goal, to keep paying that out. And the Rockefeller Foundation has managed to do that for literally almost uh, literally a century. So now the key is the asset classes you're invested in. There's a very interesting book. Um, I'm going to pronounce his, his second name incorrectly, I suspect, but Abr- Abraham Okusunwa, he wrote a book called Beyond the 4% Rule. Mm. So he looks at all the different ways that you could put together an, uh, a portfolio and whether 4% would definitely always last forever. Um, and it's interesting because the only asset allocation, he says, would is predominantly equities. But every other asset allocation, when it's got bonds in it, it doesn't work. But that's kind of the point, is that I think most of us these days who are looking at these are looking at sort of 90% uh, equity allocations. And this gets more technical than I ever do in the book, just by the But if you're looking at 90% equity allocation... 10% near cash, probably not pure cash, but near cash. Now, your 90% equity allocation is probably yielding 2%, right? So if you're withdrawing 2% dividend, right, the, as a dividend yield, you're going to need to take 2% of your cash out every year. From the portfolio itself. From the portfolio. Yeah. So you can take out 2% cash, 2% dividend. Dividends. You've got a five-year drawdown before you're touching your actual equity capital. Right? That's a big market dislocation if you if you if it's not grown again within five years which do happen but you're still at 90 right so that's the only time it would really really damage you is if it's in the first few years of a retirement when you just decide to stop working and then you get a massive market hit but if you think about it that's the best time for it to happen because you're still young you can go back to work Mm. top it up again and and have a strong enough base but later on there's been enough compounding and it won't damage the so interesting book. Have a read beyond the four percent rule. Mm. But I'm, I'm I was laughing because it took me years to discover this on my own. And um, this was before now. Yeah, four percent rule. I, you say I, I hear other people saying. I used to walk around 10, 15 years ago. I would talk to people working in finance and say to them, "Do you know how to?" People talk about their number in finance. What's your number? What's your number? What's your number? And we all knew what that meant, but I didn't know anyone who knew how to calculate it. 
And everyone had their own spreadsheet working things out and no one knew. And it's like, and when I said, you just need 25 times, 4%, like, can't be that simple. So no, it's that simple. It's just that simple. It can't be. Mm. That's like 10, 15 years ago. It wasn't widely known. Now, because of the fire movement, because of the 4% rule, things like that, it is becoming better known, which is wonderful because in so many ways, that reverses the mission, right? Once you know that, mm. you can then go back to understanding why money is so important and how you get towards it. And, and because it's such a simple number, that's why in the book, I think, you know, right at the beginning, I put the 25 times 4% rule right at the front. Like there's no kind of, it's not a murder mystery thriller. I'm not hiding anything. I want people to read the introduction in, of Happy Ever After to understand, okay, 25 times, 4% rule. So they know what the target is. They know what the mission is. They know what Happy Ever After is all about. You can get that solved. You've solved your money problems. I'm, just, I'm interested in your new answer, but let's stay on this just <laughs> yeah. a little while because sure, I, sure. I think it's important to talk about the, the premise mm -hmm. and the assumptions behind all these numbers that we often yeah, yeah, sure, see, sure, sure. see on the internet, right? Yeah. Different bloggers, different YouTubers are talking about it, but we really need to understand the, the assumptions so that you can work out the numbers according to your own situation and your own aspirations yeah, yeah, sure, sure. everyone is different. Yeah. So 4% rule, how does 25x your annual spending come in? It's just, oh, sorry, it's just the inverse. Mm, so okay. it's, it's so just 4%. the inverse. So it's a 4%, 25 times, they're the same number. It's just just switched Switch equ equation. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Okay. Mm. To me, I prefer switching it. The 4% kind of requires people understanding what a yield is, kind of requires that little mass. Whereas when I talk about 25 times of spending, okay. I quite like it that way because it puts the emphasis on you. Right, 4%, uh, yeah, I can take out 4% of my assets, so I build this asset. But if I say 4% of your spending, it means... I'm saying it's your spending. Mm. You've chosen to spend this much, right? So if you choose to spend 10 grand, you need 250,000. If you sp choose to spend 20,000 a month a year, you need 500. If you're choosing to spend 40,000, you need a million, but it's all based on your spending. Okay. And that's important because that spending drives the total. But if you pull it back, the total comes down, but you're also now saving towards it because you can only do two things with money. You can only spend it or save it. Those are the only two, those are the only two places it goes, right? Mm. Either it leaves you forever or you keep it, right? Those are the only two things. So the moment you start spending less, you start saving more. So you actually build towards that target faster. Okay. So, and that to me is why I switched it around. Yeah, so 25 times your annual spending is also easier to think of as well because I, you, you can calculate how much you're spending in mm -hmm. a year and yeah. you take that times 25. Yeah. And if you don't invest it, the, the money stays that it is theoretically it should last you for 25 years. But yeah. but if you invest and compound it, then of course you'll be longer than 25 years. It would only last 25 years if there was never any inflation. Yeah. Right. And if <laughs> so, you're taking retirement age, let, let's, just, yeah, yeah, let's right? just put it at 60 or 65 and then yeah. 25 to 30 years, okay, life expectancy. Okay, although life expectancy is expected to go up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you might need to put in some safety buffer. But, but well, yeah. it's like, like we mentioned in the $7 equation, right? It's, it's yeah. just X as a rule of thumb. Yeah. I put it that way, like exactly. a guideline. But something it's a, for you to think about. It's a guideline. It's a rule of thumb. It's an encouragement. A, a goal. Yeah. So you, my number, your number, they're different. My number today and my number five years ago, different numbers. You know, these things have to change. Especially if you have family, kids, what well, the numbers are going to change. The numbers <laughs> totally change. I mean, you know, it really changes. But that's, you know, that is how, you, that's why you need to be in control of actually calculating these numbers, right? You can't be relying on other people for this stuff. That's another part of, of O for own is like, take ownership. You need to understand how these things are calculated. So if you know how, and that is the ownership as well, right? If it's, if it's spending, it's my spending. 
I've spent this. I can, I can stop spending it. I can save it. I can get to that number faster. That's just putting in my ownership again, right? That's where all these things come back to we, teaching us how to know how to do these things ourselves, not relying on an advisor who says things we don't understand. 90% of advisors say things we don't understand because they don't understand them. Okay. That's why they talk jargon. 4% withdrawal rule or 25 times your annual spending. Same thing, that yeah. is the answer in the book. Let's yeah. hear the answer you have right now. Yeah, so the new answer is, is actually, it's, it's actually about why I wrote it for my daughter. Because I wrote it for my daughter because she works, she's a creative, right? So she was studying classics. She writes plays, right? This is, she's, she writes poetry. Money's never going to be important to her, right? Now, if I could get her to see that saving early will free up her life to do all those things, right? If she can save for 10, 15 years, if you can save half your income for 10 to 15 years, it will turn into financial freedom very, very quickly. And that's actually where I think that's my sort of more important answer. What's the goal? The goal is actually to stop worrying about money, right? To, to get out of this sort of consumerist lifestyle where we're all just trying to earn so we spend, earn so we spend, earn so we spend, spend so we earn, and it just keeps going and going and going. And to actually say, what do I really want to do in life? I want to do that. Does it cost much money? Not much, but I still need some. Okay, 25 times that. What's 25 times that minimum amount I need so that I can just do the thing I really enjoy? Which for my daughter would be, can I just spend my life writing plays, writing poems, writing books, assume they make no money, right? And then, but spend maybe five, 10 years saving a lump sum so she can afford to do that and let it compound on her and that's where I see it really putting in control. And I think since I started working on these subjects, there's been lots of splits in the fire movement. Mm. So have you seen coast it? fire, coast fire. fire, all so, sorts of definitions. So what I just described was coast fire, right? Mm. I tend to think of it as sort of more as like artist fire, right? So she still gets some income from gigs and projects, yeah. but it might not be consistent, but at least there's some income coming in. So she brings in some income so she doesn't need to touch her savings so her savings can grow. Mm. And there's a hint of that at the end of the book, right? Where it's like, you know, if you just save for 10 years, you know, and then let it compound. So then, you know, maybe at the age of 30, like, life's too expensive now. I've got to spend all, I've got kids. I've got to spend this. But I've spent 20 to 30 just locking away money and then just don't touch that for another 20 years. And in 20 years, whatever you've saved in the first 10 will go by four times, right? That'll increase by four times in that period. So if you've managed to save 100,000 instead of 25,000, That'll be 800,000, right? No, no 400,000, maths, maths. Eight, 400,000. But that's a great place to be just at the age of, you know, that would you'd only be 40, 50 years old by then. That's an amazing place to be. Okay. And that's where I think it's so important to have control of this because that's what we don't learn in school. We don't learn how to do that kind of thinking for ourselves about money. And that's not a Singapore thing or a UK thing or a, it's just global, right? How to think for yourselves about money and to plug money into the life you want to lead. It's not like it's complicated. That stuff's really, really easy. But because we're not taught it, it's like, whoa, too many steps, right? But build up by the basics. And that's where the book ends on that. It's like, put yourself really in control of this and you can have the life you want to. So right now, that, I think that's why she saves half a salary. Mm. She saves half a salary because she's thinking, okay, I do this for five years, I get X amount of money then maybe I don't have to save for five, 10 years because that will take care of me when I'm 45, 50. Maybe. I don't know if that's what she's thinking, but at least she's in control of that now. Let's talk about investing. How yeah. is your daughter investing? Because in the original definition, $7 millionaire, you need to 
compounded annually at 7%, mm-hmm. right? How, how do we get to 7% in your opinion? Okay, I'm going to answer that question. I can't answer how my daughter invests because mm-hmm. I don't check. Mm-hmm. I think it, and, and that's a very important part. I don't check because I want her to learn her own lessons. I've very deliberately taken her from zero to one. How, what I would do, what she will do, they're totally different things. So I helped her open accounts and I helped her like look into things. And now she buys the indexes or the ETFs that she wants to buy. And I, and I don't get involved. <laughs> I just have this picture by my where she comes to you and says, oh, I, I got into Bitcoin more than 7%. <laughs> Dad, no. well, what's 7%? <laughs> well, actually, I think her best gain, the last time I spoke to her, was in, a, was in an ESG fund that okay. she'd invested in. Right? So, so you know, funds, you know, yeah, ETFs, funds. Yeah. Okay. So she's doing things like that. 7%, remember, it's long term. It's like, yeah, one year, maybe it's hard, maybe it's easy, right? But long term, as you were quoting that study earlier on, right? I've looked at it since then. I looked at it, last time I looked at it was end of last year. There has not been a 50-year period in which the S&P 500 hasn't returned 9%, mm. right? It's on nine, average, about 9, 10%. It's, it's, so it's, there's more than seven, actually. Yeah. yeah. And, and you see, if you go back like 20 years, yeah, fees would have taken 2 to 3% out of that. Right? You'd have paid a 5% for upfront load, and then you've been paying 2% out per year, but not anymore. Now you're paying 20 bips, right? If you're clever, you're paying 10 bips. Right? That is no longer taking any money out of, your, out of your S&P performance. So it's pretty straightforward, actually, how to get that 7%. The other, thing to, the other way I think about it is, let's say we don't make 7% returns mm. from the S&P 500. Yeah, worst case. Yeah, let's say we don't. The reason we're not is probably a multiple number of factors. One of those factors is, let's, let's, let's do the reasons why we've been making so much money in the S&P. One is economic growth. The economy's been growing very quickly. So that's one of the things that contributes to that S&P. The other thing is there's been inflation. There's a bit of inflation tucked into that number. So if we're not making 7%, it's, it's likely that there's been low inflation. So we don't need 7%. The other thing would be maybe not so much economic growth. But then again, so the assets won't be so expensive, which would mean that yields would have gone up. So that's actually also not such a bad situation for us either. So all the things actually about being invested in the economy, we make these returns because we're invested in the economy. If we don't make the returns, it's because the economy isn't returning as much. So we don't need quite the same level of returns. The other thing that could happen is that the return to labor has gone down in the last 50 years. The return to capital has gone up. Mm. You look at, you know, if you think about someone like Thomas Piketty from... uh, He's done all these studies on, on how the 1% is getting all the gains out of the economy. And if you look at it, it's uh, completely true. I mean, the return to capital is enormous. The top 1% makes more money. As it's growing in value, yeah. our income is not rising according to inflation. Exactly. And I think it was an OECD study that pointed out that in the last 40 years, the income of a CEO in the US has gone up 11,000%. No, 1,100%. 11 times. Whereas the income of the average person... It's gone up 11%, mm. right? There's a hundred times difference in terms of what's happened. Now, that's enormous. But if for some reason the S&P started declining, one of the reasons might be because we're getting paid more. We won't have to worry about it. If you actually stack all the things that go together to say what will stop me getting my returns from the market, the market isn't just random, right? That's one of the problems that people will say, well, who can guarantee getting 7% returns? Well, no one can guarantee getting 7%. What's the relationship between our we're getting paid more and, and therefore not having as much returns in the S&P 500? Okay, so... Let's build that up a bit. So the there are only so many factors of production, right? Mm. So the factors of production... Labor. Labor, capital, 
land. Land, forget about, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's just kind of there, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and land is a form of capital in many ways, right? Because the people that own it put capital into it. So there's basically labor and, and capital. capital. Right. So what's driving the profitability of the company you own? It's the, it's the profits that are coming off it. The money that it makes, does it, does it pay its employees? Or does it pay its shareholders? Those are really the main two places it can go, from profits. And that's why if you see a situation where we're not getting the returns from the market, the only third thing that drives us, so if you think about what returns, what drives market returns, basically it's profit growth and valuation increases, right? So we're talking about profit growth. What drives profit growth? One of the things that's driven it, economic growth and returns to, ca- returns to labor dropping. So if returns to labor increase, we see a reduction in profit growth. It might mean markets don't grow as fast. But then we move across to the side and we look at what, you know, if, what if happens if we don't get the valuation increases we've had? Well, that's mainly because of governments printing money, which drives inflation. So then we get a lower inflation rate. So we don't need the same returns. So my point to this is the numbers can change for lots of reasons. But if you're not in the market, you don't capture that market gain. And that's why it's been so painful for the last 40 years, where so much of economic gains have gone to the market. Now, if you are you and me and we're working for a living, and we will we'll get the benefits of increased returns to labor if we're there. And also, if there's not so much printing and money, we won't have to pay the additional cost of inflation. So we're okay, but we should still be involved in the market just in case we're not getting the gains from labor and we are facing inflation. The market will take care of that for us. So mm-hmm. that's where I don't worry about it too much. Okay. It's, also, it's, also, it's also why I don't talk right. about it too much, because you can see, right, that's, I can't talk to my daughter about that. You, you know, <laughs> it goes over there. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to see if I understand it correctly. Yeah. So help me out here. So you're painting a scenario by if money flows to labor, therefore our income increases, uh, the profitability mm-hmm. of the company goes down, yeah. goes down and, and therefore the S&P returns won't be as high. But, but Potentially. Anyway, the, the money is going to the labor. <laughs> we'll get it anyway. This is right? one, one yeah. scenario, but that's not the main point. The main point here is that you have to be invested in the market. So regardless of whatever happens, you, you still have to stay invested so that you get the returns from capital. Well, I mean, that's the point, right? You take this risk. I mean, if you're short the market, and this is the thing that when people talk about, oh, market's risky, it's like, do you not understand? You are taking a risk of being short the most powerful system humans have ever invented, the financial system. You've literally shorted it by having no involvement at all, right? That's crazy. By not doing anything, not you're doing anything. shorting it. You're okay. shorting it, right? That's taking an aggressive bet. Right. You should be involved, right? And that's really all you say. So be involved. Now, if it, if it happens that... You know, and not, you know, if it happens that there's more money returning to labor, you didn't need that bet. Lucky you. Okay, yeah. But you still need some savings when you're older. Mm-hmm. It's just they won't have returned quite as much. But you'll be being paid more. And you know, there may not be quite such high inflation if you're not making the returns from the market. So those are just looking at like two simple drivers. There's more behind it, obviously. But if you think about those two big drivers of the S&P 500, inflation and wage growth, those two things say to you, yeah, you should still be involved, right? You may not get the returns, but you may be okay in other ways, but you should still be involved because otherwise you're just short. And who takes that bet? I mean, literally, who would take the bet of saying, it's okay, labor's going to go up in value and it'll all be right for the next 40 years? That's an enormous bet to take. Well, that's, that's a lot to think about because you're kind of predicting the future in a, in a way. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, sa- I'm saying don't predict the future in that way. Yeah, because you just, can't. Because you can't. So actually just... 
be invested, save, take care of yourself, and then this is how you get to own your life. It's not saying you can predict things. It's it's crazy to try and predict things that aren't already happening. What I would say is the financial system has existed for about 700 years, becoming increasingly complex, increasingly, increasingly more powerful, hard thing to bet against. So probably best to be involved with it. Okay. Actually, I'm going to tell you something I learned. I mean, this is a total trivial fact, mm-hmm. but I learned where the word banker comes from about two months ago. And I didn't realize this, but bankers, so they've been in existence for about 700 years since uh, medieval Italy. And the first bankers weren't allowed into the markets. They had to stay outside the markets because money lending inside the markets was illegal. But they could sit outside on benches. The Italian word for bench is banker. Bancheri were the people that are sitting on the benches outside the market. And that's all banking means. It's the guy on the bench. Amazing, right? That's, that's all it means. It's like okay. you know, we have this complex thing now as a result, but it started there. It started outside Italian banks and outside Italian markets with these guys lending money and they had to sit on the bench. And that's mm. why they're called bankers. And put it under the Today I Learned category. <laughs> yeah. T-I-L, hashtag T-I-L, Today I Learned. Yeah. Okay, before we wrap up this part of the mm-hmm. conversation, is there anything you want to add on or emphasize or anything that we missed out? No, I think, I think for, for me, it's just so important to start this process. You know, it, it's one of the reasons a lot of people don't start is because they feel apprehensive. And, and I, you know, to your your viewers, your listeners, I suspect they've already started. So they may feel like, oh, what's this guy talking about? It's much easier than that. I'm already involved. I already do things. But I would say one of the most important things we can do in our lives is to help other people get involved. You know, I learned this stuff a long time ago. I think it's really important to help other people. But we don't help other people by just telling them what we know because often they're not ready for it. And so it's very important to get where they are. And that's a lot of, as you, as you heard from Happy Ever After, is about getting to where my daughter was. With the $1,000 Journal, it was about getting to where the migrant workers were, sitting with them on their side of the table and saying, okay, what is it they understand and what is it they don't? Be in their position, then work out what is the thing they need to learn to get to the next thing, to get to the next thing, which is where I can then talk to them about what I need them to understand. Right? But it's separating learning from teaching. If you want to teach, sometimes it just means you want to talk and tell people what you want them to know. But then it doesn't go in necessarily. If you want them to learn, you have to go to exactly where they are and know where they're at and then build their learning from there. And that's where I think, you know, I'd like to say, I think that's what I try and do with Happy Ever After and The Thousand Dollar Journal is to go to where someone is, just start with that basic and then build up from there. So friendly, if your listeners, your viewers, I suspect you've had more complicated conversations than this, and we might be dealing with very simple things. But sometimes it's good to go back and revisit it and just go into the basics and make sure you're really fundamentally strong. But equally to, you know, if we're all, fi- you know, people that are financially aware, we have conversations with people they aren't, and they look at us and they go, the market's a casino, you're talking rubbish, right? I've heard it, you've heard it. And you just go, you know what? Let's go back a bit and then give them the book, give them an idea, give them a website. Just read some of these basics. It's not a casino. It's really, you can treat it like a casino if you want, but it's not. You can treat it very, very sensibly and change your life. And that to me is what I, you know, the thing I'd add, because I think it's so important to go back to those basic levels of understanding, because then you can go up to like really extremely complicated ends of things and be comfortable doing it. Like if you look at like anyone who does something very complicated, they learned those basics and they built on those basics. 
And anyone who gets things weirdly wrong, they haven't built those basics. And that's where it's like, you go back, build them, build them slowly. Okay, so this is like a foundational episode. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, I hope you've learned something useful today and I truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconuts. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our socials, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description. If you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. For more information, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead, stay tuned next week, and remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, and sustainable for all. I have three more questions for you. Last three questions Sure, for sure, you. sure. Go on. All right, so first question. Yeah. What is one core life principle that you hold? I think that there is... I'm going to give you two. I think one of them is about being mindful. The more you can know about who you are, how you see the world, how you think about the world, it's very useful to do that. Not just financially, but everything. To know when you're reacting just because it's an emotional reaction or whether you're actually thinking about what you're doing. And I think the second one kind of comes on from that, which is like thinking about other people, helping other people, you know, because so often we assume we know what other people are thinking when we have no idea. And if we have a sort of good mindful concept of how we are approaching things, we have, tend to have a better thought process of other people, you know, be able, more em empathic about who they are and, and what they want. And so I think those two things combined. So I think that sort of combination of being mindful about ourselves, it applies to the money. You know, it really does, you know, just actually seeing the world. It's actually the, the book I've just finished. It's the next book, which is about treating money in a Zen uh, way of, of life. So it's about being mindful, but it's also about seeing reality directly, right? Just, you know, that's a thousand, a $5,000 handbag. Who, what, how does that change your life? You know, it's like, if you are worth a billion dollars, fine, right? Because it made no difference. But if you're earning $100,000 a year, You've just given up five percent of your life for that, and that's. And if you're saving five thousand dollars a year, you've given up a whole year of your saving for that one bag. These people do these kinds of crazy things because they don't see the world directly. So that mindfulness is powerful. But then I think there is so much happiness from helping other people. The moment you start doing any kind of volunteer work, that's the end of your life because you're doing volunteer work the rest of your life because it just is so much better than anything else you do. A friend of mine during COVID started organizing beach cleanups in, in Hong Kong. And I talked to him about it after like his third or fourth one. He's like, it's incredible. It's like, so I did a couple on my own with my kids and that was good. Then I invited some friends along and, I, you know, and, now it's, and then it was like five or six people at a time. So he's been doing it a year now. About 5,000 people have joined him in the last year doing beach cleanups all the way around Hong Kong. And everyone who does it for the first time is like, that's like the best afternoon I've had because it's like strenuous but simple but hard work. And then at the end of it, you go, but I did something good. And the thing is the difference between like, let's, let's take the difference between eating a donut, which is just great, <laughs> and doing like an hour of labor that changes the beach. Yeah, we can all eat the donut and enjoy it, but it's like it's gone, right? Whereas cleaning that beach, even if you only do it once for one hour, you'll remember it for the rest of your life and think, I'm a better person than I was before I cleaned that beach because I cleaned that beach. 
And he says, everyone who does it feels the same way. And that is sort of really using your mindfulness to, to help other people, but at the same time, help yourself. What is one piece of financial advice that you think should be shared more often? Oh, I think it's just, it just this, the fact that you save before you spend. It's that simple little rule because everyone who doesn't save doesn't do it. Right? Literally, because you know they don't save. Nearly everyone who saves at the end of the month doesn't save at the end of the month. Even though they start every month thinking they will, they don't. There's actually a, I can't remember the, the people that did the study. They did it in Canada. But it was based off Daniel Kahneman of Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. It's based off his study back in the 70s of the, of the planning fallacy. So the planning fallacy is when you're in college and your professor says to you, uh, when are you going to hand in your, your essay? And you say, I'm going to hand it in the end of this week. And, and, then the, and then you hand it in three weeks late, right? And the professor, even if he says to you, you hand it in the end of the week. Yeah. Every time you said that to me this year, it's been two weeks late. You still say, yeah, but this time it's different. Mm. I'll hand it in at the end of the week. That's the planning fallacy that Daniel Kahneman wrote about. So this Canadian team, they did the budget fallacy. And this, if you ask someone, how much are you going to spend this week? How much are you going to save this week? It's always wrong. The only people who get it right are the people who save at the beginning of the week. So that's why saving comes first. That's the thing I'd change. Because you get that done, you know what's going to happen? You don't need to tell people to invest. Because if they've got enough savings, they'll invest, right? They'll just look at it and go, I've got to do something with this once they've started saving. So that, to me, is the first one. Save first. What's one area of your life that you're giving additional focus right now? Oh, wow. An additional... I think that the volunteer work, working for other things. But I think also in financial literacy and, and financial education, one of the things I'm looking at there is... When you start, as you're doing with your project, you know, you're, you're talking to people and you're talking very, very well and you're finding new information. But what I find is I think there's a lot of information out there and a lot of people working on it and no one's gathering that all together. No one is saying, this is the world of financial education. This is the, the world of financial awareness, which means that there's a lot of confusion out there. Who's doing what? Who's saying what? So I actually want to try and resolve that. I want to try and create the beginning of an ecosystem for money awareness for financial education. It's going to be hard work, but I feel to me that's more value than the world doesn't need me to write another book. I've now written three. That's enough. But that I feel was like, if we can do something where the idea I have is actually, can we create the Oscars for money education? Because there isn't one. You know, if you tried to get a, a, an award for your podcast, it would have to be in the podcast awards. You know, if I tried to get one for my book, it would have to be at the book awards. Mm. There's no awards for people who are working with money and trying to teach people about money. You know, the Oscars seems to do a pretty good job for the, for the movie industry, right? I think if we could do a similar thing for, for money and money awareness, we could, help, we could help grow the market. We could help connect people so they know what the best ideas are out there. And then maybe we can put pressure onto governments to start teaching it in schools and just actually become like a, a real industry. Because right now we're not an industry. You, me, we're all kind of acting on our own and doing these other things. But we could be an industry. So that's an area of things I'm thinking about. Right. Put us up, financial coconuts. <laughs> put us up for the Oscars <laughs> for finance. Right? I will send you the, the link. When there's a link, I'll send it to you. You're first on the list. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been really good fun. 